If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, there's no need to look for a bride and groom. You're like, where's the altar? <laughs> We're not going to surprise you with a wedding this morning, but we are going to look at the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, also known as the great love chapter. If you'll bear with me for a few minutes, I'm, I'm going to let you in on a, um, my typical sermon writing process, and it will be a clinic on how not to prepare a sermon sometimes. <laughs> one of the advantages of doing these standalone messages where it's not a, not a part of a series, but kind of one and done messages is that I get to preach on something that kind of interests me. I get to start with a question or maybe a theological tension or something that really interests me. Um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll have a question and then maybe I'll explore it through articles or blogs and I'll talk about it with people. And the way that my mind works, very quickly, this idea kind of blossoms into a little mini message. Sometimes I even have transitions, illustrations, stuff in the middle of it. It, it just kind of expands very quickly. Well, then I get about a week out to where I have to preach, and I um, need to tighten everything up. And of course, at that moment, you realize, oh, I, I need a text. So a lot of times I'll find the perfect text that will support my message. You know, I'll have to find the Bible that will just, you know, allow me to preach all of my opinions and ideas. But then the week before, it inevitably happens. I study the word, the text that, I, that the Lord led me to, and I realize, oh, no. <laughs> This says nothing about what I thought it said. So anyway, I have to scrap a lot of good messages, but ultimately unhelpful messages of my opinions. Rather than bending the Bible to make it work for my opinions, I've got to scrap them. So there's a lot out there. I'll talk to you about them later if you want to, but they're very unhelpful. I would have kept this private because it's slightly embarrassing and it does show off my youth and hopefully I will learn my lesson. But the process was so formative this week that I, I felt compelled to share it with you. Um, here's what happened. June 26th, you'll remember, it was a big day in our country. Supreme Court legalized and legitimized same-sex marriage for all 50 states. I was speaking at TVR. Where's TVR? Woo, yeah. Awesome. Yes, I, I had limited internet access in Plumtree, North Carolina, so I followed the whole story on Twitter. Never a good idea. Don't ever do that. Never let Twitter be your, your uh, complete source for news. That's what happened to me, though. I could only refresh Twitter, and I followed the entire story there. I was very grieved that day. But a very... Um, Interesting thing happened, at least on Twitter, what happened was is that you could kind of tell what the slogan was, hashtag love wins. Early that morning, uh, President Obama, right after 9 o'clock, tweeted to love wins, this hashtag. Twitter jumped on board. They actually added a heart-shaped rainbow to every tweet, and my mind started rolling, right? By 3 o'clock that afternoon, 2.6 million tweets had been tweeted to love wins. That's significant in the Twitter sphere, all right? So... 2.6 million tweets in an afternoon. This was very curious to me. Why did love wins win? How is this the slogan for this Supreme Court decision? If love won, what lost? You see my mind just is kind of running through a lot of questions, and I thought, you know, I could develop this. What is love? If love won, we got to define it. What is love? And if you're going to define love, where else do you go than 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love chapter, boom, got a message. And then I start, and then I start studying, and... Um, Really a very painful, painful thing happened to me. I came to this text thinking I could use it as a weapon. Well, I'll teach you a thing or two. And uh, my instincts were actually right. I just wasn't anticipating the weapon being turned against me. And that's what happened. Um, I was devastated this week as I, as I looked at this passage that we are very familiar with. Thinking that I could kind of have some ammunition against our culture, you know. And, and, and teach him a thing or two. And, and instead I came away very humiliated. Um, 
at my lack of love. So the text this week not only obliterated my message, it obliterated me. And so it's in that humble spirit um, that I hope to proclaim this beautiful and important text on love. So read it with me, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. We're only going to look at the first half. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God, let this text move us this morning. We pray that above all else, God, you would teach us to love. Without love, we're nothing. In Christ's name, amen. Some call this the greatest chapter in the New Testament, and it's certainly one of the most eloquent chapters that Paul ever wrote. And because of that, it's one of the most exposed chapters in the Bible. I bet that everyone in here has something at your house, maybe a frame, a calendar, a mug, a notebook, something with 1 Corinthians 13 on it. And I imagine that a lot of you have memorized it at some point in your life. Maybe you didn't even have to look at your Bible this morning, but you could just recite from memory 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And yet, in spite of the familiarity with the text, I wonder how well we apply it. It's one thing to enjoy a text and look at it on a calendar or a mug. It's an entirely different thing to apply it. And I ran into that this week. As far as sermon prep went, this was actually pleasant. It was was, aesthetically appealing to sit in a climate-controlled, well-lit office thinking about love is patient, love is kind. Yeah, that's right. It's beautiful, and it moves my soul, and it stirs me. Love is patient, love is kind has a completely different feel when you're sitting next to your three-year-old who's on the potty and won't go potty. Like, you know you've been there. It's like, just go. You're right there. (laughs) Love is patient, love is kind. You just kind of want to repress it at that moment where the scripture speaks to you. This morning, we're going to venture into this well-known text in search of very much-needed application. How can we turn these beautiful words into beautiful action? That's what the scripture is calling us to, turning these beautiful words into beautiful action. And the first step is getting the context right. As appropriate as this text is for weddings, Paul is not standing in front of an adoring young couple. He's not speaking at a marriage seminar, and is um, contrary to what I had thought, he's not giving the Corinthians some bullets to attack the faulty worldview in the town of Corinth. No, he's writing to a deeply divided church. Corinth was a mess. And it's interesting then that the most beautiful chapter in the New Testament falls in one of the messiest letters, isn't it? Corinth was a mess, and Paul is appealing them and calling them to love. One of the greatest divisions occurred over the use of spiritual gifts. Now, you'll remember in Acts chapter 2, right after Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends and he fills the church. Now, this is standard to us that we've had 2,000 years to process this. Pastor Doug teaches a wonderful class on the spiritual gifts. But imagine those early days where all of the sudden, ordinary people were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do incredible, miraculous feats. Some of them spoke in tongues. Some of them had miraculous faith. Others healed people. Some preached with power. Some evangelized with astounding results. They prophesied. All of a sudden, the, 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 the church was completely changed. And as amazing as all this was, though, the Corinthian church did not take long to mess it up. As humans were prone to do, 
they began to compare and they got jealous. I think of a little boy, a group of boys dressed up like their favorite Avengers characters fighting over which one's best, right? It's Iron Man. It's Ant-Man. <laughs> Probably not Ant-Man, but this argument happened in Corinth, though, between, between full-grown men and women that were washed and filled by the Holy Spirit. Full-grown men and women that had been washed and filled by the Holy Spirit, and they're fighting about which gift was better. This infuriated Paul. And so Paul writes them in his letter, and he targets this divisive issues in chapter 12 through 14, the gifts. Here's the thrust of his argument. They, they were really obsessed with the gift of tongues. And so in chapter 12, Paul reminds them that they're a body. There's not a gift that's more spiritual than the other, just like there's not a member of your body that's more useful than the other. You need every member of your body. A functional body has functional members, just like a functional church needs every gift. That's the thrust of chapter 12. The end of chapter 12 flows really nicely into 14. And in 14, Paul will turn him a little bit, and he actually kind of will rank the gifts. Okay, so if you'll read chapter 14, he says, listen, if you're going to pick a favorite, don't pick tongues. You see, tongues benefit the speaker. Prophecy, on the other hand, benefits the church. And so pursue prophecy so you can benefit the entire church. Essentially, Corinthians, stop thinking of yourself and start thinking of the church. That's what the gifts are for. 12 and 14 flow very nicely into each other. And because of this, some commentators will say that, well, the church later implanted verse or chapter 13. That's not true. That, that thinking is not necessary because actually chapter 13 is the key to Paul's logic. He's talking about the gifts and the usefulness of the spiritual gifts, and he has to put 13 right in the middle. You see, love is the key to the Christian life. The gifts will not operate and will not work if love is present. So Corinthians, stop thinking about the gifts and start thinking about love. It's not that the gifts aren't important. It's just that the gifts without love is nothing. So let's look at love. We'll dive into the text now. We'll notice that the first seven verses are neatly divided into two distinct movements. The first, describe the necessity of love. Verses one through three, the necessity of love. Why is love so important to the church? The next four verses will outline the nature of love, verses four through seven. What then is love? The necessity of love and the nature of love. So first, let's talk about the necessity of love. Read these verses with me again. If I speak in the tongue of men, tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Here's the question Paul's asking. What makes you spiritual? He's talking about the spiritual gifts. What makes you spiritual? Is it the gifts, or is it love? Paul will bring them back to earth. See, they thought that tongues particularly made them spiritual, speaking in these angelic tongues, but Paul's going to demonstrate that the gifts alone are not enough. The gifts alone don't make you spiritual. It's love that demonstrates the Spirit's work in your life. Here's the thrust of Paul's argument in, this th in these three verses. He's going to take four, four, four gifts, tongues, prophecy, faith, and service, and what he's going to do is he's going to extend them to their highest imaginable possibility, and once he gets this exalted image, he will crush it if it's not accompanied with love. He's going to take normal gifts and extend them to their highest imaginable possibility, and he will crush them if love is not present. 
It's a stunning paragraph. He starts with tongues again. This is the hot issue in Corinth. Here's what he says. Let's say that I possess the gift of tongues. Actually, let's, let's take it further. Let's ex- extend it to its highest possibility. Let's say that I speak in the tongues of angels. I can talk with heavenly beings. Okay, you've got that picture. Let's say that I possess the gift of prophecy. No, actually, let's go further. Let's say that I know everything about everything. Now, we all know people who think they know everything about everything, but let's say that I literally have mastered this gift. There's not a mystery that confuses me. There's not a piece of knowledge that is too great for me. I know everything about everything. I possess the gift of prophecy. Let's say that I possess the gift of faith. Actually, not, not, not saving faith, right, that, that, that everyone um, can possess, but the gift of divine special faith for a certain moment. Actually, let's extend that to its highest imaginable possibility. Let's say that I have faith that I can move a mountain. I can flip Mount Mitchell to Myrtle Beach. Like, just like that. Just move mountains. And let's say that I possess the gift of service. Actually, extend it a little bit further. That's not enough. Let's say that I give everything, literally everything I own to the Buckabag garage sale. I give my house. If you can fit it in a bag, you can have it for a dollar. I give it all for other people. And let's go even further. I will relocate my family to the mission field where we will eventually all die. Do you have that image? Do you see this exalted image? We have a person that converses with angels who literally knows everything there is to know in our universe that casually rearranges mountains and that has given up his very life. Paul says that that person without love is nothing. She's not gained a thing. He's a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. She's annoying at best, an offense, and an offense to the gospel at worst. Love is necessary. Paul could not be any clearer. The gifts alone don't make you spiritual. New York Times columnist David Brooks has an interesting way to articulate this tension between maybe the gifts and the fruit. And he's writing to a secular audience, but I think it's interesting. Either way, he says that every human has an opportunity to pursue two different sets of virtues. The first he calls resume virtues. These are the virtues that set you apart from every other person. It it outlines your ambition and your accomplishments. What makes you who you are? What makes you great? What makes you succeed? Resume virtues. The second set of virtues available to every human is the eulogy virtues. What will people say about you when you're gone? What is your character like? And Brooks is right when he says that the secular world almost exclusively pursues resume virtues. We try to get ahead, we try to accomplish, and we leave our character to go to waste. That's the secular thinking mindset. And and I think, well, the Corinthian church certainly got that. And I think our church is very prone to do that. We just let character go by the wayside. We'll forget about character, we'll forget about love, we'll forget about our family, we'll forget about the people that matter to us most, and we'll just focus on our ambition, even when it's cloaked in spirituality, my spiritual gifts. I'm doing this for the Lord, right? Paul says, no, that without that, resume virtues without eulogy virtues is nothing. You can't do it. The scripture demands that we pay attention to our character. Love is absolutely necessary. How could we apply this to the modern church? Paul used the first person so I will join him. I'm not saying this about anything. I'm saying this about me. <laughs> I could preach a really nice message. Actually, no, no, let's extend it. I could preach an unforgettable message and convert boom. And if I'm a jerk and people don't like being around me, the message isn't nothing. I'm nothing. 
I could sign up to help at VBS. Actually, no, I can listen to Seth's message and sign up to help serve every service, every nursery for 25 years. And if I don't love the little children that walk into that room every morning, I'm nothing. I could sign up for every short-term mission trip, and I can actually relocate my family to another country. But if I'm driven by my ego, and I'm trying to show you how spiritual I am, it's, I gain nothing. I can contribute to that new building, actually sacrificially. I can hypothetically write a check for two and a half million bucks, and we can finish that thing. But if I don't care who fills the building when it's completed... I'm nothing. It doesn't matter. Who cares? That's what Paul is saying. Who cares? First Corinthians is abundantly clear. Your actions don't make you spiritual. You must love. Love is the best gauge of the Spirit's involvement in your life. So the natural question here then is what is love? If love is that important, please define it for us. And so Paul will outline the nature of love. This leads us to the second part of our outline, verses four through seven. Paul will tell us what the nature of love is then. If it's that important, let me tell you what love is. We're gonna move through this section way too quickly, but let me say a few words about the paragraph in general. Okay, four through seven. First, this is not a comprehensive definition of love. I used to think that it was. I used to think this will define love, but there's a lot of key elements to love that are missing in this definition, in this paragraph. You see, this paragraph is tailor-made for the Corinthian church. Everything in this paragraph could be hyperlinked to another portion of the letter. You see, Corinthians, the Corinthians did not love. They weren't patient. They weren't kind. They were very arrogant. They were very envious. And so every single attribute here could be hyperlinked to the other portions of 1 Corinthians. Right? And yet, this is written to them in their current situation, their, their, their situation, and yet I'm amazed at how relevant this text is for my life. It's not just for this church. You see, the same issues that wreck the, the church in Corinth tend to wreck my own heart. Second, you don't see this in English translations, but every characteristic here is a verb. In fact, sometimes Paul would create a word. He would have to make up a word to make it a verb. And what he's saying here essentially is love is not a thing, it's an action. You cannot describe love like it sits on a trophy case. You have to show it. You have to show love. You can't just talk about it. It has to be shown and demonstrated. Finally, this text can be broadly applied. As we go through each of these attributes, you might be thinking, who should I love? Who should I direct this to? Here's the answer to this question as far as I can tell. I want you to think of a face, any face, <laughs> and that's it. Love that person. It can be broadly applied. Now, of course, Paul is writing to a divided church here, and so I think that's a good place to start. If you're at war with somebody in this church, that's the place to start. And yet, I don't think the love that Paul describes here can be contained. I think that our neighbors, even our greatest enemies, deserve this kind of love. And so, broadly apply this love. That's why I think Paul says that this kind of love is better than a self-absorbed jerk that can move mountains. When we have a church that loves like this, that will change the world. So what is love? Let's explore this list quickly. Patient and kind. I find it interesting that Paul starts the list with patience, don't you? Of all the virtues, why patience? John Chrysostom 5th century saint said that patience is the root of self-denial. That's an interesting statement. Patience is the root 
self-denial. The Corinthian church, on the other hand, was self-absorbed. They were all about themselves. They rushed to the Lord's table. They rushed to take their brothers and sisters to court. They were self-absorbed. They did what felt right to them. They did not love each other, and it was evident in their lack of patience for one another. The modern church, again, should pay attention here. You see, in our fast-paced world, patience is almost a vice, isn't it? Who would willingly downgrade your phone? I'd like my, my old clunky phone. It goes so much slower. <laughs> I'm going to downgrade my internet speed. It's just whipping, man. I just can't. <laughs> I haven't had to see it buffer in, in months. Waiting makes us cringe, and yet the scripture tells us that love waits patiently. L- love is not just simply patient. It's the verb form here. Love waits patiently. That's what love is. The, sen- the scriptures are essentially asking us to deny ourselves. Listen, if you refuse this, if you refuse to wait patiently and you orient your life around your own fast-paced schedule and around your own needs and around your own career and around your own timetable, what's going to happen is you're going to mow over the people that are closest to you. If you're self-absorbed and you have no patience, you're going to mow them down. And yet if you deny yourself and show patience and you orient your life and your schedule around the people closest to you and you wait for them, you're denying yourself and you're demonstrating agape love. Love is patient. It's also kind. Again, this one's just funny to modern ears. Like, really? Number two? Love is patient and kind. Well, I mean, we all like kindness, don't we? We like it when people are kind to us and kind to animals. But would we really put kindness as number two on this list of, of virtues for love? But if that's your view, you've, you've, you've probably not wrestled with the weight that is given to kindness in this scripture. You see, kindness is a great mover. It moves us. In fact, Paul told the Roman church this, the kindness of God that drove them to repentance. Are we stuck? Oh, we're stuck. It's all good. You don't need it. It's Romans 2. You can check it out. Romans 2, it's the kindness of God that drove them to repentance. If it weren't for the gentle, loving kindness of God, we would still be dead in our sins. Think about that. Don't underestimate kindness. In fact, there is something to the statement to kill them with kindness that actually motivates people very well to move into action. Unlike manipulation, if you're trying to get somebody to do something, manipulation will destroy both them and yourself. And yet kindness, love, you have no ulterior motives, and yet if you demonstrate kindness, ironically, that's what moves people. Kindness. Are you patient? Are you kind? That's what the scripture is asking you this morning. And as we progress through this list, just as it did me this week, over and over and over, we're going to be exposed. And if that's the case, don't despair. I just want to ask you to repent and just quietly in your seat there, ask God to fill you with that kind of love. Repent. Next, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Let's take these next four. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. So after two positive descriptions on what love is, Paul's going to say what love is not. This set of characteristics asks how you respond to success. How well do you respond when your friends succeed and you don't? How do you respond when you succeed? That's what this is going to ask. Um, the Corinthian church did not respond to success very well. You see, whenever one of their chosen guys, maybe a- Apollos, came in and preached a killer message, the Apollos guys would be like, yeah, look at us. <laughs> And whenever um, one of them possessed the gift of tongues, others burned with envy because they wanted that. They didn't respond to success very well at all. And so 
How do you respond to success in your friends or in yourself? Love can allow a friend succeed and get the position that you wanted because love is more concerned with their well-being than your own well-being. It's self-denial. Love does not get puffed up at your own success because a loving person knows who they are. You can, you can handle a little bit of the success because I, I know who I am. And so again, if you're nursing a wound this morning, maybe you're upset and you're jealous or you're burning with envy, love doesn't do that. Again, repent. Don't despair. Just repent and ask God to give you a heart of love for that person. Next, love does not insist on its own way. This one's difficult for control freaks like me. <laughs> love does not insist on its own way. Love doesn't have to be right. Think of that. There are times, I'm sure some of you know what I'm talking about, but there's times when I just know that I'm right. I know it. And if you don't go my way, there's a good chance that we're all going to die. <laughs> like, you have to see my way because I just know that I'm right. And your way will just get us all destroyed. Um, but that's not the heart of love. When you feel those impulses and those desires rise up in your heart, that's not love that you're feeling there. That's selfishness. That's self-absorption. And again, this is just hard in our modern world because our modern world says be absorbed with yourself. You know what's best. Love yourself. Don't deny yourself. Why would, in the world would you deny yourself? Why would you do anything other than your own way? Look out for number one, because nobody else is, right? As incredible as all that sounds in our modern world, that's not love that is directly opposed to love. That's what the Corinthians had when they was opposed to love. Phil Riken asks some probing questions here that I want to ask that will help diagnose this self-love. When I'm in an argument, Am I willing to let someone else be right? Think of that. Do you have to win every argument? When resources are limited, is it my habit to let other people go first? When you see that all the white meat chicken is going, do you jump up for it? Just, I got to get to the line really quick. When resources are limited, do you get what you want or do you let others graciously go first? When someone else has something to say, am I willing to shut up and listen? These are probing questions. Let's connect this real, real quickly to Paul's greater argument in the whole, the whole section. Let's say that you have the gift of tongues, and last week you stood up and you blessed us all with the ling language of angels, and we stood back and admired your spirituality. We were blown away. But after church, you stormed out of the building because you got in an argument about the color of the purple carpet. It's lilac, and I insist on it, right? Paul would not call you spiritual. He would call you a resounding gong. You just sounded the gong and you walked out. No matter what you may have told us, no matter what your gifts would have said, love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. The NIV says this one well. Love is not easily angered. I love that. Love has a long fuse. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 34 where God descended to Moses? He passed by Moses and he told him some of his characteristics. He said this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. This is a divine characteristic of God, slow to anger. Praise God that he is slow to anger. The Hebrew for this term, though, is very interesting. Slow to anger in the Hebrew literally means long nose. And the Hebrews would have said that God has a long nose because it takes a long time for the tip of his nose to get red with anger. It's an interesting characteristic of our God that he has a long nose, that the tip of his nose takes a long time to get heated. Is that you? 
you have a long nose or a short little nose? <laughs> Are people scared to be around you? Because you snap at them. Do you snap at your family? Do your children avoid you? Or do you have a long nose with them? If so, again, don't despair. Just repent and ask God to extend the timetable of your anger. <laughs> Let it extend. Ask God to fill you with patient love. And now underneath this one also, I think, is a good theology of sleep and eating. Snickers got this one right. You're just not you when you're, when you're hungry. <laughs> We've all had a, a case of hanger, haven't we? Where you get hungry and you just start snapping at people. I found that the hungrier you get, the shorter your nose gets, right? You just heats up with anger a lot quicker. Now, I'm not suggesting that you eat more Snickers. In fact, probably the exact opposite. Eat less Snickers. But if you find that your hunger or lack of sleep or poor diet causes you to snap at people you're close to, you may want to think about restructuring these elements of your life. D.A. Carson calls sleep a spiritual discipline. Think of that. Studying the scriptures, <laughs> praying, sleeping. It's a spiritual discipline. If you're the kind of person that needs sleep and you know who you are, get sleep. It's okay. It's a spiritual pursuit to get sleep. It will help you in your struggle against sin. Just not right now. Don't sleep right now. <laughs> See? Likewise, Jonathan Edwards said that he resolved to never eat foods that made him feel sluggish or grumpy. If a certain food makes you cranky, you probably want to stop eating that food, right? Um, let me encourage the mothers and fathers of little children here, too. Nap time is not a purely physical event that disrupts your day. As you help your children get the sleep and the food that they need, you are helping them in their fight against sin, okay? Now, I realize that slowness to anger is a divine attribute given to us by God, and yet we can derail this by watching an extra loop of Sports Center every night. Okay, we need to get the sleep and the food that we need so that we won't snap and become easily irritated. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. What does Paul mean here? As one commentator said, love is for everything that is godly and against everything that is ungodly. I told you that many of these attributes were specific to the Corinthian church, right? In chapter 5, you can go read the gory details yourself. It's an awful chapter where one of the members of the church was involved in an incestuous relationship. It was sick. And the Corinthian church was arrogant. They celebrated this man, and they championed him. They, they were actually glad for him. It's infuriated Paul. And he's very clear here, love does not rejoice at that. It will not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love cannot rejoice with evil. Do you hear that? Again, I, this is extremely difficult right now because our modern world would have you believe that love celebrates everything. And if you refuse to celebrate, you don't love. In fact, you're a bigot. You're standing in the way of progress. This ethos has a lot of momentum right now. And it's easy just to say, what's the harm of celebration? Just celebrate. Just, it's okay. It's getting harder and harder and harder to abstain from celebration. But our text this morning, this is the text. This is not my opinion. It says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Please let us not make the same mistake as the Corinthian church and celebrate evil. But also let's quickly remember that it says love also rejoices with the truth. The Bible is not just about what we're against, but very much what we're for. We are for truth. Always. What is Paul talking here? It's a very broad word, the truth. There's a definite article, the truth. And I think Paul has a lot in mind. You go through your systematic theology books that are that big, right? There's a lot of truth in those. The creation, the characteristics of God, of Christ, 
the truth about the Bible this morning. I am rejoicing in the truth of the resurrection. The list goes on and on and on. And love always rejoices with the truth. And I think love especially rejoices when sinners come home. Think about the father and the prodigal of the parable son. Think about Jesus when the prostitute comes in and worships at his feet. He rejoices with her. He rejoices. So church, let us be prepared to kill the fattened calf and to celebrate when sinners respond to the gospel. We rejoice with truth. Finally, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He ends with a very quick string of affirmations. Love hopes and believes everything. What does Paul mean here? It's a little confusing. Karl Marx would have you believe that, well, just you can believe anything you want to. Christianity is just opium for weak people. Makes you feel good. Just believe everything and everybody. That's not what Paul's talking about. What he's saying here, though, is love never gives up. It endures. Anthony Thistleton, he rephrases this translation, and I think it's very helpful here. Love never tires of support. It never loses faith. It never exhausts hope. It never gives up. Paul's saying essentially there's nothing love can't face. When you think that you're all out of love, take courage because that's the moment that agape love shines brightest. You're never all out of love with Christ. You're never all out of love. Here's the question. In light of this discussion that we must ask, can I love like that? If love is that necessary that if I don't have it, I'm nothing, and love is that high, can I, can I do that? Do I have any hope? Very immediately, the answer must be no. And if you think that you can muster up that kind of love, you've obviously never tried. This type of love is beyond us. And if you try to love like that, you'll expose your unloving heart. But the Christian has hope, and here's why. The most interesting thing about 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7 particularly, is that love is personified. Paul's not talking about an abstract concept that we must attain to. He's talking about a face, a person. You see, Jesus was patient with his misguided disciples. Think about Jesus with Peter as he denied him three times, and he sits around the the little campfire there, And he restores Peter. He's patient with Peter. He's kind to those men that slapped his face and ripped out his beard. He's kind to them. Jesus was never jealous. He was never bitter. Jesus never insisted on his own way. But in fact, three times he said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Not my way. He was never easily irritated. In fact, children felt very comfortable just running up into his arms. Jesus never celebrated evil. He never celebrated wrongdoing. But he always rejoiced with the truth. He was full of joy. Jesus never got tired of helping people. He never stopped hoping. He never stopped believing in his Father. And he never gave up. Praise God to the very moment when he breathed out his last and said, It is finished. He never gave up. Essentially, 1 Corinthians 13 is asking us to do the same thing that Jesus asked us in John 15. This is my command, disciples, that you would love one another as I have loved you. We can love this way because we've been loved this way. Christ gave his life to free us from self-love. 
This morning, let us look to Christ and be reminded that you are held by a love that will not let you go. Pray with me. We pray Romans 8, familiar passage. Just meditate on these words this morning from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we are thankful for the never-ending love expressed to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to love like that. We want to take the words... 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love. We want to take that very seriously this morning. Help us. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.